0: Section 94 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Section 94, Part 2, Book the Eighth, Chapter 4, The Old Chamber. The whole ceremony of the investiture of Gwynplaine, from his entry under the king's gate to his taking the test under the nave window, was enacted in a sort of twilight. Lord William Cowper had not permitted that he, as Lord Chancellor of England, should receive too many details of circumstances connected with the disfigurement of the young Lord Fermain Clancharley, considering it below his dignity to know that a peer was not handsome and feeling that his dignity would suffer if an inferior should venture to intrude on him information of such a nature we know that a common fellow will take pleasure in saying that prince is humpbacked therefore it is abusive to say that a lord is deformed to the few words dropped on the subject by the queen the lord chancellor had contented himself with replying the face of a peer is in his peerage ultimately however the affidavits he had read and certified enlightened him hence the precautions which he took the face of the new lord on his entrance into the house might cause some sensation this it was necessary to prevent and the lord chancellor took his measures for the purpose it is a fixed idea and a rule of conduct in grave personages to allow as little disturbance as possible dislike of incident is a part of their gravity he felt the necessity of so ordering matters that the admission of gwynplaine should take place without any hitch and like that of any other successor to the peerage it was for this reason that the lord chancellor directed that the reception of lord fermain clancharley should take place at the evening sitting the chancellor being the doorkeeper modo otiarus says the norman charter Januarum cancellorum quae, says Tertullian, he can officiate outside the room on the threshold, and Lord William Cowper had used his right by carrying out under the nave the formalities of the investiture of Lord Fermain Clancharlie. Moreover, he had brought forward the hour for the ceremonies, so that the new peer actually made his entrance into the house before the house had assembled. For the investiture of a peer on the threshold, and not in the chamber itself, there were precedents. The first hereditary baron, John de Beauchamp, of Holt Castle, created by patent by Richard II in 1387. Baron Kitterminster was thus installed. In renewing this precedent, the Lord Chancellor was creating for himself a future cause for embarrassment of which he felt the inconvenience less than two years afterwards on the entrance of Viscount, Newhaven into the House of Lords. Short-sighted as we have already stated him to be, Lord William Cowper scarcely perceived the deformity of Gwynplaine, while the two sponsors, being old and nearly blind, did not perceive it at all. The Lord Chancellor had chosen them for that very reason. More than this, the Lord Chancellor, having only seen the presence and stature of Gwynplaine, thought him a fine-looking man. When the doorkeeper opened the folding doors to Gwynplaine, there were but few peers in the house, and these few were nearly all old men. In assemblies, the old members are the most punctual, just as towards women they are the most assiduous. On the Duke's benches there were but two, one white-headed, the other gray. Thomas Osborne, Duke of Leeds, and Schomberg, son of that Schomberg, German by birth, French by his Marshal's baton, and English by his peerage, who was banished by the Edict of Nantes, and who, having fought against England as a Frenchman, fought against France as an Englishman. On the benches of the Lord Spiritual there sat only the Archbishop of Canterbury, Primate of England, above and below... Dr. Simon Patrick, Bishop of Eli, in conversation with Evelyn Pierpoint, Marquis of Dorchester, who was explaining to him the difference between a gabion, considered singly, and when used in the parapet of a fieldwork, and between palisades and phrases, the former being a row of posts driven into the ground in front of the tents for the purpose of protecting the camp. The latter, sharp-pointed stakes, set up under the wall of a fortress to prevent the escalade of the besiegers and the desertion of the besieged, and the Marquis was explaining further the method of placing phrases in the ditches of redoubts, half of each stake being buried and half exposed. Thomas Thin, Viscount Weymouth, having approached the light of a chandelier, was examining a plan of his architects for laying out his gardens at Longleat in Wiltshire, in the Italian style, as a lawn, broken up into plots, with squares of turf alternating with squares of red and yellow sand, of river shells, and of fine coal dust. On the Viscount's benches was a group of old peers, Essex, Osselstone, Peregrine, Osborne, William Zulestein, Earl of Rocheford, and, amongst them, a few more youthful ones, of the factions which did not wear wigs, gathered round Prince Devereaux, Viscount Hereford, and discussing the question whether an infusion of Holly was tea. Very nearly, said Osborne. Quite, said Essex. This discussion was attentively listened to by Paulette St. John, a cousin of Bolingbroke, of whom Voltaire was, later on, in some degree, the pupil for voltaire's education commenced by pere pouret was finished by bolingbroke on the marquises benches thomas de gray marquis of kent lord chamberlain to the queen was informing robert bertie marquis of lindsay lord chamberlain of england that the first prize in the great english lottery of sixteen ninety four had been won by two french refugees Monsieur le Coq formerly consular in the Parliament of Paris, and Monsieur Ravenel, a gentleman of Brittany. The Earl of Wemyss was reading a book entitled Pratique Curieuse des Oracles de Sibylle. John Campbell, Earl of Greenwich, famous for his long chin, his gaiety, and his 87 years, was writing to his mistress. Lord Chandos was trimming his nails the sitting which was about to take place being a royal one where the crown was to be represented by commissioners two assistant doorkeepers were placing in front of the throne a bench covered with purple velvet on the second woolsack sat the master of the rolls sacorum scriniorum magister, who had then for his residence the house formerly belonging to the converted jews two underclerks were kneeling and turning over the leaves of the registers which lay on the fourth woolsack in the meantime the lord chancellor took his place on the first woolsack the members of the chamber took theirs some sitting others standing when the archbishop of canterbury rose and read the prayer and the sitting of the house began gwynplaine had already been there for some time without attracting any notice the second bench of barons on which was his place was close to the bar so that he had had to take but a few steps to reach it the two peers his sponsors sat one on his right the other on his left thus almost concealing the presence of the newcomer No one having been furnished with any previous information, the clerk of the Parliament had read in a low voice, and, as it were, mumbled through the different documents concerning the new peer, and the Lord Chancellor had proclaimed his admission in the midst of what is called, in the reports, general inattention. Everyone was talking. There buzzed through the house that cheerful hum of voices, during which assemblies pass things which will not bear the light and at which they wonder when they find out what they have done too late gwynplaine was seated in silence with his head uncovered between the two old peers lord fitzwalter and lord arundel on entering according to the instructions of the king-at-arms afterwards renewed by his sponsors he had bowed to the throne thus all was over he was a peer that pinnacle under the glory of which he had all his life seen his master ursus bow himself down in fear that prodigious pinnacle was under his feet he was in that place so dark and yet so dazzling in england old peak of the feudal mountain looking up for six centuries by europe and by history terrible nimbus of a world of shadow he had entered into the brightness of its glory and his entrance was irrevocable He was there in his own sphere, seated on his throne, like the king on his. He was there, and nothing in the future could obliterate the fact. The royal crown, which he saw under the dais, was brother to his coronet. He was a peer of that throne. In the face of majesty, he was peerage, less but like. Yesterday, what was he? A player. Today, what was he? A prince yesterday nothing to-day everything it was a sudden confrontation of misery and power meeting face to face and resolving themselves at once into the two halves of a coincidence two speeches adversity and prosperity were taking possession of the same soul and each drawing that soul towards itself oh pathetic division of an intellect of a will of a brain between two brothers who are enemies the phantom of poverty and the phantom of wealth abel and cain in the same man end of section ninety four recording by william tomko